This week's handy tip comes from our forthcoming How to Make Anything package. Milk Punch, a style of cocktail that was popular at least as early as the 1700s, first became popular in part because it removes bitterness, astringency, and other rough flavors from not-so-top-shelf liquor. The technique in this drink that tames wild booze is called milk washing, and you can try it with whiskey, rums, brandies, or pretty much any hard liquor. To do it, mix milk and a small amount of lemon juice with your liquor, stir, and let it sit in the refrigerator for a few hours. Then, strain out the curds that form using a fine strainer lined with cheesecloth. Because curds like to bond to bitter elements in booze, removing them leaves you with a smooth, mellow liquor with a small amount of whey in it, which you can use in dozens of different cocktails. Now that you've got a drink ready, we've got another super summary episode this week. Peter Martin just got back from Ireland, where he had a ton of success playing around with the Google Fi phone. Roy stopped by to teach us how to defeat mildew. We brought in a neurologist and tick expert to help us ward off Lyme disease, and everyone on the testing table tried to avoid getting sunburned. Get out your sunglasses and find the ice cream scoop, y'all. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler, and the most useful podcast ever is ready for summer vacation. So this summer is an exceptionally bad season for ticks, or so I've heard. And today we have Dr. Elena Frid here. She's a neurologist who's the health advisor to Project Lyme, which is an organization that works towards awareness and prevention of Lyme disease. Thanks for coming in. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Yeah. And Jackie's here, too. Of course. I'm here, too. <laughs> so what is it that makes a bad tick season? So a lot of people blame the deer, but actually the carriers of Lyme disease are mice and field mice. And because it's been a couple of really warm winters in the last few years, the mice population has exploded. And so in turn, the tick population that's infected has increased as well. And so obviously, we're more at risk. Is there a reason that ticks in the Northeast are so particularly bad? Well, this is one misconception where in the Northeast and middle of the country is particularly bad. It is reported in all 50 states. So I think that people really should be aware of it. Perhaps the tick population is a little bit less affected meaning that the same percentage of ticks don't carry Lyme bacteria in the southern part of the states, but also that's not very well tested. So I think you have to stay tuned. Uh, <laughs> Man, you got to just worry about it. I know. I was just, I said before we started recording that your job is to make me less afraid, and it's, you're right, it's not happening. Um, what is an environment where you should be particularly wary of picking up a tick that could be carrying Lyme disease? So really outdoor activities. 90% of people catch Lyme disease in their yard, gardening or playing outside. Or you also should consider the fact that your outdoor animals can bring in ticks into your home. That's something that people don't think about, but does put you and your family at risk. So I actually go camping a decent amount. So like if I'm hiking, is it like if I stay out of the tall grass, I'm okay? Or can you really kind of pick them up anywhere? You can really pick them up anywhere, but what you should be doing is wearing insect-repelling clothing. That's the best option, and I think for adults, you can either treat them yourself with permethrin or use insect shield technology, sending your clothes away, or sometimes in specialty stores, they'll be even sold pre-treated. So you really should be wearing proper gear when you're going hiking and not being in short shorts and flip-flops. Right. And if you find a tick, how long long before you would get Lyme disease? Are you safe if you catch a tick right away? Yeah, that's another misconception where people think it has to be attached for 24 to 48 hours. Oh, and no. if it's less than that... No, this is the only thing that made me really, feel comfortable. Yeah, <laughs> no. Really, if the tick has been on you and has been attached for a few minutes, you are at risk. But really, you need to know that you can develop symptoms within 3 to 30 days of tick attachment. And if you're starting to have uh, fevers and flu-like symptoms... 
and you just went hiking and you found a tick, you should tell your doctor and get treated right away because it's much easier to treat it early on than have ambiguous symptoms for months and then it's so much harder to treat. Do you just bring the tick with you like in a little baggie to the doctor or what? So what you can do is there's actually companies where you can send away yourself, meaning take the tick, put it in a bag, put a little moist cotton ball or something like that and send it away. You can find that online. But also be careful because they can be really tricky. They can play dead. <laughs> so don't this leave them the out. Yeah, no, yeah. Like the, like the don't worst leave animal. Them out. <laughs> what is the best way to remove a tick that's attached to you? So first of all, as soon as possible is the best <laughs> way. But what's recommended if you can do it is take a tweezers and grab as close as you can to the head of the tick as possible, which will be very close to your skin. And don't press too hard, but pull up gently and just wait. And it can take up to one to two minutes <gasps> for the tick to release. And that's less of a chance of them transmitting their saliva or their gastric content into you, which is what actually carries the bacteria. So you're trying to get them to let go on exactly. their own. Exactly. Yes. If you try and like pull it off and you just like get the body because they didn't unbite, can something get left behind or is it just that you just increase the odds that as it pulls out? It- oh yeah, they get left behind, parts of them. And so then they can get infected and you have a local infection as well. And obviously then you're not removing all of it so that their saliva can contain the bacteria that you don't want and part yeah. of their mouth is left behind. Is it easy to tell if it's left behind? Because they're pretty small. Yeah, right? it, 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 it is. Tell. Okay. That's good. The whole premise is you're trying to prevent the insects from regurgitating their stomach content, basically not vomiting inside you. Oh, my gosh. Why is Lyme disease so nasty? Why is this particular bacteria so bad? Well, it's one of the most or the most complex bacterial infection that we know of. It contains 132 genes, and it can cause so many different symptoms, including neurologic, joint problems, heart problems, gut problems psychiatric problems. So that's why it can mimic a lot of many symptoms which can be missed. And that's where the chronic issue comes And that's why ticks are the worst (laughs) animals. The last question I had was just, I mean, it's like you can send the tick off, right? But just in terms of observing your own symptoms, you've spotted tick, you've taken it off. And then five days later, you're having symptoms. It seems like there are so many possible symptoms of Lyme. Is there a way to know I've got Lyme or I should really probably go to the doctor? This isn't just a cough or a passing flu. So if you found the tick and you're not feeling well within a couple of weeks, I would highly suggest treating it as if this is Lyme disease because the ramifications of not treating it are way worse than being on antibiotics for three to six weeks. 50% of patients don't even find a tick on them because they are so small or they don't think of it. That's one thing. And also the whole issue of a rash, that's quite uncommon. People continue to look for a rash. It's sort of a false sense of security that if you don't have a rash after a tick bite, it means you don't have Lyme disease. In reality, a rash is quite uncommon. It only happens 20% of the time. And that Mm. bullseye rash that everyone talks about is even rarer than that. So just because you don't have a rash doesn't mean that tick didn't transmit something to you. Got it. So we should say that a lot of this information and just resources in general are available at Mm projectlime.org. Dr. Lana Fred, thanks for coming in. Thanks so much. 
Peter Martin just got back from vacation in Ireland this week and did not bring me a four-leaf clover, despite the fact I totally asked for one. But he's here today. He has a little bit of allergy, so if he sneezes. <laughs> just don't bring him own. donuts. I know. I won't bring him donuts anymore until you go back to Ireland and bring me a four-leaf clover. Done. So Kevin Dupsick obviously is here as well. So you had some pretty serious successes with your travel tack, right? I had some minor successes. <laughs> I, actually, that's not true. I had very good success with one of them, and then I threw in some other tips that I think I learned that are more minor in their usefulness. But I think they're good. But the best one that our tech editor, Alex George, hooked me up with, Google Fi. It's been around for a little while, but it is an international calling service. You can use it here, and it's pretty cheap. You pay 20 bucks for unlimited calling and text, and then $10 per gig. I have AT&T now. I think I pay them for three gigs a month. And if I don't use it all, I don't get any money back. But on Fi, if you don't use it, you get, you get back? back the next month. So you can sign up for three gigs for 30 bucks. If you use a gig and a half, you get $15 back towards your next bill. But the great part for me... You land in Ireland, you turn the phone on, it says, hey, we see you're in Ireland. Here you go. And it just sets you up with the local networks. And so we had cell service and data all over, which was great. And you it's have the to, same price? Same price. It's $10 oh. per gig. You can use the data, text, or calling all of them internationally? So calling ends up being 20 cents a minute for international calls, which is still pretty great compared to if I turned on my phone and tried to use it there. I think it would have been over a dollar a minute or something. Yeah. That sounds great because I feel like the data is what you really need. Yeah. It's the map. Yeah. Mostly when you're, you're traveling. traveling. And we yeah. were on GPS the entire time. And also it uses so much less data than I thought. For a whole week of every day being on the GPS, it was 250 megs. Wow. Do you have to tell it the amount of gigs you want up front? I set up for one gig and we never went over that, but it just would have charged you the other 10 bucks after okay. that happened. So it only works on four phones, the Pixel and then three different Nexus phones because it has to take a special Fi SIM card that uh, can transfer between the That networks. was my problem. I remember Alex George mentioning this one time yeah. and I was like, that sounds incredible. Why am I paying AT&T all of my toes But and he fingers? loves the Pixel. Does he? Because I'm thinking about if I could get used to Android, I'm just so hooked on Apple that I'm not hooked on, but yeah, yeah I'm so used to it. I had a brief Android phase and they have this feature on their keyboard called Swipe. Oh, it's the best. Where you can text with one finger. Yeah, that, I actually still miss that. Yeah. It's great. For the less useful tips, the more minor tips that may only apply to me, but I found them to be hugely (laughs) successful. (laughs) This one applies to everybody. When you're over there, if you have a credit card that doesn't charge you an international fee for transactions, always make sure you pay in the local currency. currency. I had no idea, and I a couple times screwed up and chose dollars, and they automatically charge you a little fee inside there. So if it's 112 that day for a euro, they charge you 117 or something. I actually think that getting a credit card that doesn't charge foreign transaction fees is a travel tip in and of itself because if you don't have to deal with changing currency too now that you can use a credit card so many places it's like if you just right. you don't have yeah. to go get the currency you don't have to deal with the exchange rates yeah yeah it makes absolutely. everything easier the other one's sunday morning the best time to see a city we were in Dublin on Saturday, and it was crazy. Granted, it was Cape Pride, which was a little <laughs> crazier. But Sunday morning when we went so in, really the best time was to so see much better. Yeah. But even if you go in Brooklyn, if you get up on Sunday morning, it's like people aren't awake. Nobody cares until 10 o'clock. Yeah. So if you go down like Sunday peaceful. morning. Yeah, this yeah. is my new plan for any time I go to a big city. I'm going to hang out. When I really want to spend time there, it'll be Sunday morning. So the way this might apply to only you is that you're generally a curmudgeon. Like some people <laughs> want to see the crowds. In the- True. But also it's nice when you go to, and it's, there's not people yeah. running into you everywhere. It's not packed everywhere you want to go. It's just kind of nice to walk around a city when it's feels empty. Yeah. Another thing about that is a lot of museums have Friday nights that they're open, and I've done that at the Louvre, actually, and the Louvre was not almost empty, but it was... And that's what you really want to be empty. Oh, it was... For sure. My experience at the Louvre was one of the most incredible museum experiences I've ever had, and I seem to remember it was free if you were under a certain age on Friday nights, and we were broke and had bought cheap tickets (laughs) to Paris and were staying in a hostel and went to the Louvre for free, and it was pretty killer. You want one last fast one? I do. That at least works in Dublin. When you're going back to the airport to see parts of the city to really explore the city i just turned on no tolls because i was running out of cash and didn't want to get stuck without it it took us through we drove through the entire city to get to the airport and it was great 
So now my next city that we go to when I have to go to the airport, I'm going to change it so you can do no major roads, no tollways, and then you just get to drive through the Google city. Because on your Google Maps? Yeah. Yeah. And see stuff. That's a great idea and also a good idea because a lot of toll roads don't let you pay in cash anymore. So if you get a rental car, they want you to pay some exorbitant amount of money mm-hmm. to have an easy pass or whatever the heck pass, sun pass, yeah. for the amount of time that you have the car. And they'll, you know, if you don't get this and you end up on a toll road, we're going to charge you $25. And yeah. I got that whole storm and noise when I was down in Houston from the rental car agency and just avoided toll roads and it was totally fine. (laughs) Also, another nice plug for Google Fi because use Google Maps, your data, it's easy. True. Yeah. Travel tips with Peter. In our September issue, which is out the first week in August because magazine time is very strange, <laughs> it's our How to Make Anything issue, and we did a special package on ice cream. Matt Allen, who's a frequent guest on the podcast, did a lot of hard work on that, and we've all been eating ice cream for months. Yeah. But there was one particular type of ice cream hack that he found that was not included in the issue, and we thought we would test it out. Lara Sorokonich found this, and we made Peter Martin make it. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't let Lara eat it, but she was the big proponent of it. It's no-churn ice cream, and places like Tastemade have a thousand recipes for it, so we just picked one of those and tried it out. But isn't that the fun part? It's a, yeah, also it doesn't seem like it should work. After doing it, I'm not really sure why you would do this over cranking the ice cream, but maybe it's just easier. I haven't made ice cream in 20 years. But I put this through a very unfair test because we had people over for dinner last night. One of them is a trained chef. The other one is some high-up guy at Italy. And then my wife works at Bon Appetit. So I had three. That is is a tough crowd. I had three critical critics to try this (laughs) ice cream. Anyway, so what you do, instead of churning anything, you take heavy whipping cream, whip it until it turns into thicker cream, and then put in condensed milk for sweetness. And this one was peanut butter and dolce de leche. So you just put in a bunch of peanut butter chips and dolce de leche and then freeze it, bring it back out. Dolce de leche? At Whole Foods. I was a little worried I couldn't find it, but for $8, you two can buy a one cup jar of I would just eat that. I would eat that by itself. I'm worried that's why I liked it, which kind of (laughs) (laughs) blows the surprise of whether or not I thought this was good, but I liked it. But anyway, it takes like 15 minutes. You mix it all up, you put it in the freezer, freeze it, and then when it comes out, put a layer of peanut butter on top, some chocolate sauce, scoop it out. So wait, how do you whip the cream? With like an egg beater or what? Yeah, I just put it in a um, KitchenAid. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> At like, first, so just the paddle. And an important lesson that I learned as a non-cook, the big paddle that just has one thick arm in it does nothing to thicken whipped cream. When you put the actual, like, the beater thing, the metal whisk yeah. attachment, I did that after five minutes of getting frustrated. <laughs> you didn't ask your wife? Who she wasn't at- home. Oh, I well. had to do it on my own. I'm, I'm glad you did. So it, it fluffed up right after that with the right thing. <laughs> Very Yeah, quick. that's for batter mixing, I think, Jen. Yeah. Who knew? I mean, everybody else apparently, but not me. I don't really understand how whipping cream becomes whipped cream. It's your, pretty cool. So I don't and know if, if you that's... keep doing it, apparently it turns into butter. Right? I think because uh, we've, we've hand whipped yes, and if you no whip too hard. But it was good? I thought it was very good. I wrote down some reactions from my crowd. I meant to bring it in for you guys and I forgot it in the freezer this morning <laughs> so you can eat it. How long do you have to freeze week? it for before you can eat it? Two hours. But I just threw oh, it out overnight. That's pretty and fast. Then pulled it out when they got there. Yeah, that's pretty fast. I was pretty proud to contribute to dinner because I didn't do anything else other than start the grill. So, comments that I heard, not bad. <laughs> hey. <laughs> Somebody said good. <laughs> You really went all out to record these. Someone's, it's like I wrote them this down. Is some, this is some serious reporting. Journalism. <laughs> At first, two people said, we'll just share this one. But then they cleaned their plate. Oh. So, and then one of the women who happens to work for The Chew said, Chew viewers would love this. Doesn't taste bad, but the consistency is funny. This tastes like Carvel that was frozen too long. <laughs> um, and then I think, t- who was that? Yeah, was that your wife? Yeah. 
<laughs> she likes Carvel. But so that wasn't totally a knock. And then one person went back for seconds, but that was me. So it doesn't really <laughs> matter for the other people. So yeah, no churn. I would still buy ice cream. I would not do this. But it was fun to try. And I feel like maybe kids would like it. It makes sense to me. When I was in college, we used to freeze Cool Whip. When I and was then, disgusting. We used to that's just right. freeze. That's right. I mean, yes. I, we ate a lot of toast. You know, <laughs> we eat with our hands. And... Yeah. <laughs> so no churn ice cream. Not bad. Roy Berenson is back on the podcast. Oh, thanks, Jackie. Hooray. So we're going to talk about mildew, which is one of my favorite topics because I'm from Florida and it is very humid there and everything smells like mildew in the summer. Oh, yuck. Yeah. So I wanted to see what are some solutions for if you've got mildew on your house, on your siding. Yeah, yeah. It's a common problem. First of all, just so people out there are saying, well, I don't have mildew, but I've got mold. So should I listen to this or not? Mildew and mold are sort of imprecise terms. Oh. When experts in this field talk about this, they'll talk about mold usually. But they're interchangeable terms that have a tendency to be used informally and imprecisely. The actual experts will use the real name of something like a ah. so-called toxic mold. They'll refer to as Stachybotrys chartarum. How do you know that? That's crazy. They get a lot of press after hurricanes and floods because houses get soggy and they get damp and the press is frankly guilty of throwing around imprecise terms. Toxic mold, toxic mold. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, The moment they see something that looks like mold or mildew. Mildew tends to be the fungus that grows on plants and vegetables. It is most often referred to as the fungal infestation in bathrooms. Mm -hmm. So some basics first. Usually they're all propagated by moist or damp conditions. They are plants, so they need moisture to grow. They often grow in dark conditions, like on the shady side of the house. Almost everybody has them in their house to one degree or another, and your reaction to them, some of that is just visceral. You might say, ew, yuck, and it's not harmful to you or it's not harmful to the house. On the other hand, if you have an allergy to that specific microscopic plant, this fungus, yeah, then you're going to sneeze. It's going to make your eyes water and itch. And sometimes they smell, too. Smells like home to me, personally. (laughs) Yeah, right. Mildew, I miss Lord. (laughs) Yeah, they can react with the substrata and feed on the substrata that they're growing on and outgas various things or react, set off a chemical reaction that with the deterioration of the surface creates an unpleasant odor or an odor that you notice Usually these fungi grow on damp surfaces, and you can't always prevent that. The outside of your house gets wet. It stays moist, let's say, longer on the shady side than it does on the sunny side or on the windy side. However, on the inside of your house, if your house is getting damp on the inside, there usually is something you can do about that. If your plumbing leaks, that can result in moisture being released somewhere inside the building. Let's say if you have a drip leaking plumbing under your bathroom sink. It's going to make everything damp inside that bathroom vanity. It's dark. 
There's food substances in there of various kinds, and you're going to create a condition conducive to mold. Is there a roof leak that is allowing moisture into the building cavity, creating wet insulation and wet lumber, wet drywall? Is that If that's going on, you probably have to rip a lot of stuff out if that's going on, right? Yeah. The answer is yes and no. It depends on the severity of the infestation. How far has that moisture progressed? Has it progressed to the point where wood is actually rotting away? And that's a fungal action. The wood is rotting. Now, that's the most severe case. But generally, you fix the leak. In some cases, you have to open up wall cavities. You'll find mold, let's say, and you need to treat that. There's a variety of ways, but let's not go there quite yet. Let's just say you have some simple mold growing on the inside of your shower stall or something. Right. I think that's pretty standard. Yeah, pretty common thing. It's a damp environment. There are food substances, usually a film of some organic material on the wall of the shower. So you start by cleaning just ordinary detergent and water and remove that strata And that'll get rid of it. Well, yes and no. What it does is it removes the actual physical plant itself, but sometimes it leaves behind the spores and other microscopic debris that's going to cause a reoccurrence. You can remove that with a powerful oxidizer, usually chlorine bleach at about the ratio of a cup and a half, let's say, of chlorine bleach in a gallon of water. It's pretty strong stuff. And you would just spray that on? Wipe it, usually after the surface is dry, so you're cleaning and you're removing the dirt, the greasy soap scum and so forth, and often just mechanical cleaning, sometimes even with just water and a clean rag, will go a long way in helping you to mitigate that. When you remove that surface scum, now you're allowing that bleach, that oxidizer, to come in contact with the surface. That's what you want. You want to always remove the overburden of dirt and whatever that film is so that that cleaner disinfectant can actually make molecular contact with the surface. So that'll work in a lot of situations on your siding or in your bathroom. Exactly right. If it's in your drywall, you can't do that or... If it's a minor surface infestation, yes, actually. Basic cleaning and then disinfection will take care of it. Now, if it's really infiltrated the drywall, gotten past the paper into the gypsum, normally it's confined to the paper because these fungi, they like cellulitic materials, paper, drywall surfaces, and so forth. Now, if it's inside the wall cavity, no, obviously just treating the surface won't help. However, the good news is that usually when you reduce the moisture infiltration into the building cavity, you've solved the roof leak, you kill the plant or you at least force it into dormancy. It's like the way I normally kill plants, by not watering Yeah, yeah right, not why, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. Those are some great tips, and I feel like we'll all be much safer from gross mold. I am so excited for another new segment this week, Matt Facts. That one we actually did last week, Matt Facts. No, no, this is Matt Facts. Right, James? Uh, yeah, we're doing M-A-T-T-E Facts. Matt Facts. That's what I thought happened last week. All M-A-T right. Facts. Well, we added the T-E. All right. Yeah, this is all different. All new. Brand new segment. A whole new world of Matt I Facts. cannot wait. Yeah, okay, great. So uh, <laughs> the first one, uh, Matt Finish of a firearm, like your classic shotgun or rifle, is called bluing. And when you oh. blue a barrel, it's actually a rusting process, which is pretty neat. And so what it's doing is you actually induce the rusting in the barrel, but what you get is it's called 
called, it's an electrochemical conversion coating, and you selectively rust for magnetite, which is Fe3O4, which is the black <laughs> ah. oxide of iron, rather than Fe2O3, which is like rust, your red oxide of iron. So when you blew a firearm, that nice matte color on it, it's not paint, it's not it's plastic, rust. it's rust. I'm still waiting for the blue steel joke. I don't like low-hanging fruit. I want to climb to the top of the tree. Wait, so do you have another Matt fact? Yeah, there's there's, there's one more Matt. I I thought the fact that all firearms are rusted is cool, but whatever. (laughs) Tough crowd. In 2012, BMW released a series of cars that you could get in what they referred to as frozen colors. So you could get Elsa on the side of your car. (laughs) Yeah, boom, there it is. No, no. (laughs) It's just that they were matte finishes. But the cool thing about these paint jobs is that one thing was your car could get really dirty and you wouldn't really be able to tell. Because it doesn't shine, so it would just kind of absorb the dirt a little bit. That's kind of smart. Yeah. But people who are getting these matte finishes on their cars and paying the premium price for them, I don't really think are the kind of people who are just like, oh, my car is dirty and that's fine. But there were a lot of care instructions that came with it. So there are a couple interesting things I thought were pretty funny. Is that you couldn't use polish or wax on your car at all because it could unevenly smooth out some of the matte finish and you'd have like spots of shine. You also could not use any mechanical means of cleaning. So you couldn't get a buffer out there. You had to be really careful going through automatic car washes. I think ideally they said like, don't go through an automatic car wash. And if you do, make sure they use soft bristles. Well, it's a good thing the dirt blends in. Yeah, exactly. Because your car is going to stay dirty forever because... I'm not out there hand-washing my car. And you also had to make sure that if you got any tar or bugs or bird crap on your car, that you went out there and just very carefully washed it (laughs) off. That seems the most precious of all those instructions. Oh, yeah. The bird crap thing is kind of funny to me, but also every bug. Like, if you went any reasonable amount of distance, especially in the summer, late summer, you'd have to be out on your driveway with, like, your soft Brussels toothbrushes to keep that beautiful matte finish. So rust and don't rust. There we go. Opposites. And this has been Math Facts. <laughs> it's pretty hot this week, as it has been for some time in New York City, and we thought we would talk about Sunblock. So I invited Eleanor, who is a frequent user of Sunblock. An always user of Sunblock. I, <laughs> I ate, this is not a joke. I ate my lunch outside yesterday. I was outside for less than an hour and came back with a sunburn. Oh, my gosh. So, so you're serious about it. Yeah. Oh, very serious. How did you find out about the thing you're testing? I was doing some research about personal safety, and this just came up, and it was not really related to the article, but I was like, I would love to test that. I they're going to say that for personal safety, you incorporate sunburn prevention, like just for <laughs> I yourself. I like, say like mace, <laughs> keep my keys in between my fingers, I know some jujitsu, and sunblock. Yeah, to and be honest, banana the, boat. The sun is probably more <laughs> threatening than anything else is out there, to me at least. Yeah. Uh, we should say that Eleanor is fairly pale. Yeah, I think that that's, that's, if you're, a, that's if you're, a kind way of putting it. <laughs> if you're a person who can't see her, which is everyone who's listening right now. Yeah. I also burn fairly easily, so I was trying out my own sunblock. I do too. And I hate putting on sunscreen, so if either of the things you guys are going to talk about work really well or are just easier to use, I want to hear about it. So I tested out something called the My UV Patch. It's being made by La Roche-Posay. Currently, you can't buy it individually, but you can get it as a freebie if you buy sunscreen off their website. So they give you one if you buy the regular sunscreen, they give you two if you buy their baby sunscreen. So I bought the baby sunscreen and got two. And a tube of that, I think, is $19.99, so not prohibitive. So the way that this UV patch works is it's a really thin sticker, and you just put it on your skin just anywhere that you can get to it with your phone. 
it links to the My UV Patch app, which is in the Apple Store. And basically what it does, you set up a profile, you tell it where you are, it calculates the UV that you would be exposed to based on where you are geographically. I think it links to like the Weather Channel app to figure that out. And you scan the patch periodically throughout the day, and there's colored bits of dye on the patch. So depending on how much UV you've been exposed to, the dye will change color. The app will read that and see how much you've absorbed. And then as part of setting up your profile, you put in your skin type, and I put in the palest of the pale. (laughs) (laughs) I think there are five different options. So it'll tell you how much UV you've absorbed, and if you're at risk, if you need to reapply, if you need to get out of the sun. So for me, it was not that useful because I apply sunscreen all the time anyway, and it basically told me, regardless of the amount of sunscreen I had, that I was at my daily UV limit. (laughs) It's like you've seen the sun, so you're done. Pretty much. Um, So I think that it would be useful if you're someone who actually tans and doesn't apply sunscreen just like any time you leave the house like I do because you might think you're just working on your tan and it might not be thinking necessarily of how much UV you're absorbing. So if that's the case, then having sort of an app to tell you like, okay, you're tan now, but maybe you're getting into a danger zone skin health wise, like that would be useful. Question, is the patch, is it like a one-time use thing? Like once the pigments change color, they're done? No. It doesn't like come off easy? Like if you're out in the sun and you're sweaty, will it? It does not come off easy. You can wear one patch for two to three days and then they recommend you switch it out. I wore this one for two days and showered and whatnot in between and it, it was on there pretty good. I had oh, to peel so you could off. do it for like a weekend beach trip. Yeah, definitely. Although then you would get a square. Well, that's the interesting thing. You can apply the sunscreen over it because it's very, very thin so it'll absorb it and it'll take that into account when it's reading oh, the Oh, that's very cool. That's yeah. cool. I like that. Yeah, because it can be hard when you're trying to reapply and figure out when you need. I mean, that's always my problem. If I'm going to get burned, it's going to be a reapplication problem. Yeah, I totally I agree. I always apply before I leave the house. And, and then, then I think like I did my diligence like yeah. i'm done and then eight hours later i'm yeah. really burnt you can see exactly where you didn't apply the sunscreen yeah. yeah i think it also might be useful if you're like a parent with small kids and you don't necessarily know how long they've been on the sun or if they've been in the shade or what you can track them with this app and see like when you have to tell them to put sunscreen back on for like small kids I hate putting on sunscreen because it's so thick and the emollients are gross and you break out and it makes your face shiny and I'm vain. I don't know. I just like, I, I no, hate. No, it sucks. It, I, we, we can all agree it sucks, You put your makeup right? on top of it and then your makeup sticks to it. You put and makeup then, on top of sunscreen? Yeah. That's that, how it well, works? you're supposed to wear sunscreen every day. And if you put it on in the morning, then you've got to put your makeup on on top of it. And then you just feel like you're wearing a mask of like stuff. It's gross. I think it's oh. gross. I mean, I have so many questions. I'm just not even going to start. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, I have a friend that works for Estee Lauder. And I had heard from her that Estee Lauder is currently working on a new formulation of sunscreen that's based on the idea that the reason American sunscreen is so crappy is the binders and the stabilizers that are in it that make it chalky and sticky and gross. It's not actually the sunscreen ingredients that are that bad. And so what I heard from her and also from the internet, actually, <laughs> is that the Japanese people have figured this out. And in Japan, people are very, very serious about sun care. Being pale is a little bit more desirable there. And they've really kind of figured out sunscreen. And so I read basically that this particular sunscreen is called Biore UV Aqua Rich Watery Essence, uh, which is a very Japanese Japanese name. name. (laughs) Yes. It's supposed to be just the ideal, incredible sunscreen that doesn't make you feel gross. And I found it on Amazon and I found it for anywhere between $8 and, you know, $13. It's a fairly small container of it that comes this little squeeze bottle. It 
It's super waterproof is what it says. It's SPF 50. It smells a little bit like alcohol and citrus, but you put it on and it is as light as like a face lotion. I am so into it. I'm wearing it right now. I have worn it almost every day. Like I normally don't wear sunscreen every day and I've been wearing it in the morning instead of my normal How big is the bottle that you got? Like how many days could you wear it, do you think? It's like a couple of ounces. I've been using it for about two weeks almost every day and I've probably used about a third of it. Okay, so that's a good amount. Yeah, you know, you don't have to use a ton, especially if you're just using it on your face. I knew somebody that worked at La Mer, which I don't know if you know La Mer, but that's like an extremely expensive skincare company. And they used to just send me all their new releases and they sent me Mm. their sunblock one time. And previously that was the best sunblock I have ever used. It's $100 for it, for like a little same size as I'm talking about right now. And this, I would say, is equal. It doesn't smell quite as good, but it's equal and cheaper and from Japan. So you can show off to all your friends, like, I have this weird Japanese sunblock. Is it easy to put your makeup on over it? Yeah. It gives you kind of like a satiny, powdery finish rather than, Mm. like, the sticky, glistening. Eleanor, tell us what it's called again. It's the My UV Patch. Okay. If they start selling this by itself, would you buy it? Or will you buy more baby sunscreen just to get two of them? I probably won't just because I'm locked in on the sunscreen. I have to use it no matter what. Yeah, but your fate I, is already decided. It's yeah. sealed. But I would definitely recommend it to friends who tan and, and aren't as, as pale sunwise. as I am. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> would you get it? Maybe I would. I feel like I have a pretty good sense generally of when I'm starting to burn. But maybe it would help me reapply before. I'm starting to burn, so I would definitely try it. If I were going someplace where I was going to go to the beach for a weekend, I think I would get a bottle to try the patch out. The reapplication thing is definitely what kills me every time. Yeah. I like it. And what about you? I'd say, I mean, you seem like you're pretty over the moon. I, you know, I just bought this because I wanted to try it and will buy another thing of it and I'm wearing it every day. So yeah, yeah I'm pretty pro. So the answer is yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> the answer is I have bought it. <laughs> would you try her sunscreen? Absolutely, I would. I would. What about you? you yeah, would. no, I definitely would. Yes. I don't even care. At first, at, first I was gonna, at first I was going to ask, is this sunblock, is it going to like seem girly to me? But I don't even care anymore. Like it just sounds like it's better. It smells citrusy. So this is another thing that's interesting about it. It has hyaluronic acid in it, which is an ingredient that's in drugstore face creams as well. But it's a kind of a fancy face cream ingredient, which is not oh. something that's mm. normally in uh, sunscreens. So it's like face cream that's also sunscreen. And tell us the super Japanese name again. It is the Biore UV Aqua Rich Watery Essence SPF 50 plus pa plus 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 all right pop and mechanics approved <laughs> so that's our show the most useful podcast ever is produced by the staff of popular mechanics and edited by brandcasters inc we'd like to thank sarah bentley and andy bowers from panoply and popular mechanics editor-in-chief ryan d'agostino please subscribe to our show on itunes and while you're there leave us a comment we'd love to know what you think and if you want to read more about summer fun you should check out our website popularmechanics.com while you're there, you can subscribe to the print and digital edition of Popular Mechanics magazine for just $13.99 a year. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler. Thanks for listening.